You're listening to episode 17. Hey there, Business Generals family. Welcome to another super episode of the Business Generals podcast where I feature amazing guests and I ask in-depth questions about their entrepreneurial journey. You know, my belief is that it doesn't matter how your journey in life started. It's not that important because great or small, the important thing is how you finish. So whatever your situation today, I want you to know that you can get your hopes up, that you are good enough to chase your dreams. In today's show, family, I dig into how it all started for our feature guests, how they have built their brand, and I even get into all the juicy details about their big challenges, their growth moments, and all their big breakthroughs. So it's going to be an amazing show. I actually selfishly started this podcast because I love to hear how entrepreneurs did it, and I wanted to ask the questions for myself. So really, I am the number one student. So Get ready for amazing coaching tips, family, to help you maximize your business dreams. Welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business Generals Podcast, where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs five days a week. David Mutabo here, your host. Super excited to bring you today's feature guest, Mr. Rennie Gabriel. Rennie, are you ready to share your entrepreneurial story? Oh, absolutely, Davis. Fantastic. Rennie is the award-winning, best-selling author of Wealth on Any Income. Rennie is a UCLA instructor, a certified financial planner, a chartered life underwriter. He's a business owner. He's owned a number of businesses. He's a property investor and a business coach. And the cool thing is 100% of book and coaching profits are donated to a charity called ShelterToSoldier.org. I am super excited to dig more into your story, Rennie. Uh, but I just want to welcome you to the show. And before we talk business, I just wanted to maybe, if you could perhaps take 30 seconds, tell us who is Rennie outside of business. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, thank you, Davis. Um, it, I guess the bottom line is you could say I'm a serial entrepreneur. Um, I started uh, in the insurance industry. I owned a pension administration company. Uh, owned a book publishing company, provided business coaching to financial planning and accounting firms. I still teach at UCLA. That's going into about 20 plus years now. And uh, author, publisher of other people's books, on and on and on. Wow, that's huge. Talk to me about how your journey business started and how long have you been full-time for yourself? Oh, gosh. Well, it'd probably be easier to say I'd only been an employee twice in my life. And once was when I graduated college as a school teacher. Uh, that lasted about a year until I realized I couldn't live on that income and support a family. Um, and the next time would have been about 10, 12 years later when I became the director of pensions for an insurance company. And after being there for about three months, they merged with another company and just kind of cleared off everybody whose office was on the fourth floor, and that's where mine was. And So that only lasted three months. So other than that, I have uh, been on my own. Uh, everything from uh, teaching people how to do arts and crafts while I was in college uh, to, as I said, the business coaching and real estate investing, uh, gosh, just, I, there's probably things I've done that I've even forgotten about. 
a door-to-door salesman, all sorts of stuff. Uh, That's amazing. Um, So, Rini, what are the core revenue pillars in your business today? Uh, Core revenue pillars uh, is from my real estate. It's a passive income. I have apartment buildings. I have investments in uh, triple net lease properties with Walgreens, uh, limited partnerships. I'm also an angel angel investor in a startup business that reduces the food waste from buffet restaurants and provides reduced meals of fresh food to people. It reduces our carbon footprint. Uh, Second trust deeds. I'd actually have to look at the list, but primarily the main income revenue generator are my passive investments, and that's why at 100% of the profits from my books or business coaching or online seminars, I can donate to charity. Right. That's great. And you mentioned um, the first job you held um, essentially was for a short period, and you went into business for yourself. Um, maybe just walk us through how your business journey has translated to, to where you are today. Um, um, in, in yeah, well, I probably I started out, even though um, an insurance agent might be someone who is responsible for selling the products of a specific company, whether it's Transamerica or Prudential or MetLife or New York Life, Generally, you end up having to look for products to other companies because not everyone fits what one company has to offer. So I would say I was an agent but also a broker, and the most important thing was to help the clients in what they needed. So that's where it started. I was only in my 20s at the time and didn't have a good grasp of sales, so I was constantly feeling the need to learn more about sales, more about psychology, neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, uh, on and on and on to improve my skills. And that continues to this day. I still take seminars and workshops uh, to learn to improve my skills, even if I'm not having to use them. Mm. Right. So um, you've started in your business journey and um, you've evolved. You've ended up in real estate, but you, you've kind of done pensions and I've heard a little bit about your story um, in, in some, some businesses of yours um, actually going, going broke. Can you just walk us through some of those experiences <laughs> and how you ended up in real estate? Oh, yeah. Um, There was a time when I left the pension administration business for some art galleries that I owned, uh, and it was about 1982, and the economy uh, was as bad or worse than the depression that we had in 2008. And while I'm selling artwork uh, to businesses or individuals, uh, the businesses were more concerned about paying their phone bill than putting art on the wall. And the business, I went broke. Uh, it was so bad that I, I ended up having to gather soda pop bottles to go to the grocery store and exchange that for groceries for my family. Uh, yeah, I was about three months behind on the house payment. The bank was about to foreclose on it. That's when I did some door-to-door sales uh, just to generate income in like two days before 
the expiration of the uh, time frame I could make my mortgage payment. I gathered up enough cash. I walked into the bank to make the mortgage payment, you know, so it wouldn't foreclose. I mean, I've had some really tough experiences. A couple of divorces, that also took out a lot of my money. Um, and so by the time I was age 50, I was starting all over, I would say for the third time, two divorces and a business failure. And uh, one of the important things is when you know how to make money, the fact that you lose it all isn't all that important. Um, I've heard that many multimillionaires have been broke. And so I'm not saying <laughs> that's the appropriate pattern, but it seemed to be something I experienced. Um, but this third time, uh, I started with doing some business coaching. That's what I knew how to do. I was earning, I had enough clients, I was making $5,000 a month. So I wasn't making a lot of money. And that's one of the reasons my book is titled Wealth on Any Income. We're talking about, you know, from $5,000 a month of earnings, I set aside 10%. It's a 5,000-year-old principle. So I'm setting aside 500 a month. I gathered up about $19,000 in my investment portfolio. And I had the opportunity uh, through uh, my wife's real estate partner to buy a little triplex. And... That 19000 was enough for me, but my wife added $19,000. Uh, the person who found the property added uh, $38,000, and that was our down payment. That, that little property, uh, four years later, we were able to sell for a half a million dollar profit. We, you know, rejuvenated it, put in new tenants, landscaped and stuff. And using the laws here in the U.S., uh, you're able to do what's called a tax-deferred exchange, where as long as you buy property similar to what you're selling, meaning if you're selling investment property, you're buying investment property. It could be from an apartment building to an office building, from a shopping center to um, a mobile home park. The whole point is it's investment property to investment property. So that little three-unit building was able to uh, get us a 15-unit building on the exchange, so five times more units. Uh, we remodeled that, uh, tripled the rental income on that property from about 5000 a month to 16000 a month. And in the meantime, as we're doing this, I'm still setting aside money, and then I decided to borrow money against some real estate to make down payments on more apartment buildings. So by the time all was said and done, within about eight years, we had uh, 50, five zero, 50 units uh, that we were owning or controlling. In eight years? In eight years, yes. So I went from broke, literally broke, to having a... Uh, multiple million dollar net worth in eight years. What was your investment strategy? What were you looking for? We were looking for buildings that had deferred maintenance uh, and that were mismanaged. Deferred maintenance, meaning? Meaning uh, the roof might need to be replaced, the plumbing is not good, the electrical system is outdated, it needs to be painted, the landscaping looks bad, 
Um, the countertops are old. The flooring is worn out. And, you know, we would redo all of that stuff. That's what allowed us to triple the rental income. And would, that, would you do that yourselves or would you hire it out? Um, um, we would oversee the, the work, but yes, it was hired out. Uh, I can do little things like change an electrical outlet or unstop a drain or replace a toilet, uh, but I'm not able to move walls and install counters or cut granite or any of that kind of stuff. Um, very interesting. Rennie, you started with $19,000, obviously double that 38 plus another 38 from your third partner, but that's still not a huge amount of money to be able to generate a fifth um, portfolio in eight years. So, so that's interesting. I'll come back to the strategies that you were using back then and whether you're still teaching those today. But, um, you know, how did you find your first property? Um, and how did you find your first set of clients? Um, that was the value of my wife's real estate partner. He found the properties. Uh, well, the one in Burbank, the 15 units that we exchanged into, my wife found. But uh, that's what he was really good at. He was good at continuing to go comb through things that were coming for sale and find the uh, gems that were out there. And, you know, he said, I found this property, we'd buy it. He said, I found this property, we'd buy it. And that's what we would do. So it's, I guess, uh, the way that I would phrase it, and this is probably the cornerstone of creating wealth. And it is not a do-it-yourself project, it's a team sport. Creating wealth involves other people. It's not something you do by yourself. And that's probably the most important thing I could say. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about a sports figure who has a business manager or an accountant or his coach or, um, you know, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. None of these people built their companies or built their wealth by themselves. That's true. That is true. That is very important. Um, so you were partnering up with the right people uh, and you essentially divvied up who was going to do the, the sourcing of the products or the, the opportunities. And uh, what was your role? My role was the day-to-day -day management and working with the tenants. Um, my, <laughs> my partner could find the properties and if he had conversations with the tenants, they would call me and say, so-and-so said this to me. What is wrong with him? Ah. So you know, I just tried to keep him away from the tenants because all it did was create problems. So I worked with the tenants. I handled the day-to-day -day management. I provided the rent increases. I solved the problems. And it was good enough that he found the properties and contributed half the uh, down payments. Now, two questions. What is a triplex for, for the audience who are not in the U.S.? And also, um, in other jurisdictions, like where we're based here in Australia, um, generally, I don't know, a very high percentage of investment properties, certainly ours, are run by real estate agents. And I, I feel like in the U.S. market, it's slightly different. Just educate us on those two points. Sure. So um, most people are familiar with a single family home. And the next step up would be what's called a duplex, where there can be two families who live side by side in one building, and they could each own half of it. Or one person might own both units and rent out the other half. 
Same thing with a triplex. The owner could live in one and rent out the other two or could rent out all three. So a triplex is nothing more than one building that has three rental units in it. Whether the owner is in there or not is not relevant. On the same title? Uh, yes, yes. One person can own all three units and rent them out or live in one of them if they choose. And after that, you've got what's called a fourplex, where you've got one building that has four separate units in it. Again, the owner could live in there in one of the four or not and rent out four or rent out three if they're living there. After that becomes what's called commercial property in the United States. Five or more units are considered commercial property. It's a different loan process. It doesn't have the 30-year loan, which is traditional in the United States. Uh, they're generally five, seven, or 10-year loans. They may be amortized. So it's a different structure, but that's a summary of residential real estate. Okay. And, and the aspect of managing the properties on your own. Yeah. The, um, as an example, I wouldn't want to live in, let's say, a triplex or fourplex and rent out the other units because then you're available to the tenants on a continual basis. So I don't live on any, I never have lived on any of the properties I've owned. And I do, in terms of the management, if a tenant has an issue, whether it's with the plumbing or the electrical, they call my office, my assistant lets me know who called, what's needed, and I'll determine if I need to go out and check it first or send someone out there to do the work. Um, I've been taken advantage of. You don't need a real estate agent to take care of the properties in the United States. You don't need a management company. Uh, I teach this material at UCLA, how to take care of your own property. If you choose to give that away to someone else, you can, but I think it's important to be knowledgeable about it. One of the experiences that taught me how valuable that is was being on vacation one time many years ago. A tenant said their toilet was continuing to run. It wouldn't shut off. So I called a plumber. The plumber wasn't available. He referred me to someone else. That person goes out and says, oh, you need to replace your toilet. It's $200. And this was very early in what I was doing, and I was not willing to spend $200 while I'm on vacation to some plumber I haven't met and not know really what the problem was. So I said, wait till I get home. I got home, went over to the apartment, lifted the lid of the toilet tank, and I could see this is the old-fashioned kind where there's a float on the end of a metal rod. And when the float gets high enough, it turns off the water to go into the toilet. I bent the rod, it shut off the water, problem solved. It didn't require a new toilet, it didn't require a new float, it didn't require any parts whatsoever, but the plumber wanted $200. So I, I, I don't want to be taken advantage of, and so I would check things out before I would even call in, you know, a plumber or electrical contractor or whomever. Well, that's interesting. So, so you've mentioned you're teaching um, these different concepts at UCLA and through your, your speaking and coaching um, 
engagement. So what, what are the key things uh, that you're teaching? What are those messages? Uh, the messages are that it is so much easier to do things than what people think. As an example, they might call a locksmith to change the locks on some rental property where the locks cost $20 and the locksmith charges $150. And the reality is there are only four screws that hold the whole thing in place. And what I do in my UCLA class is I ask who feels that they are not competent to do anything mechanical. And generally several women will raise their hand. And I'll have one of the women come up and I bring a sample lock set to the class and I say, okay, let me have you remove these two screws and now these two screws and you've now taken the lock off. Now, do you think you could put it back together? And they do this all within 10 minutes or less. So they're daunted by the look of it where they don't know what's going to happen, but then I show them how easy it is. And what else is in your broader course and, and based on your, the philosophies in your book? Well, it's finding the kind of property that fits the criteria that you're looking for. Do you want a property that may need uh, some repairs? Do you want a property to be managed by someone else? What are the metrics or the numbers involved in the property? Is this a property that's going to run at a profit or run at a loss? And how do you determine that? What is the loan factor? What are the property taxes? Uh, what are the general expenses? Um, are the brokers who are marketing this property giving you numbers that are realistic or make-believe? And so we go through, where do you find these properties? How do you create relationships with the brokers who may be having these property, properties listed for sale? In, in six hours in the course, we really cover a lot of ground. That's great. Um, I want to talk about entrepreneurship, and then we'll come back into the, the more topic about the real estate business that you're running. But from an entrepreneurship perspective, fear of failure is a, lot of, is, is a big thing. Um, it doesn't sound like that held you back too much, but um, in your current um, business, right, in your current real estate portfolio, is there a, a key moment where things just were not going well and you just wanted to walk away that maybe you can share with us? Um, yes, there were times where I didn't follow my own advice and I rented to someone that I should not have rented to, and they were close to what I would call a nightmare tenant, and it gave me the feeling I don't want to do this anymore. But with a little passage of time, I realized it's just a little blip. It will go away, it will get solved, and things will be smoother. And that has continued to happen. Uh, my tenants, by and large, are wonderful people. Uh, I don't have problems with them. Um, besides running background checks and credit reports and things of that nature, which I also teach in the course, I have uh, what I would call the lunch criteria. Is this a person I would want to have lunch with? If this is not a person I'd be willing to have lunch with, this is not someone I want to have a long-term relationship with living in one of my buildings. 
Interesting. Um, and then you obviously do more detailed checks, like you said, you know, um, credit checks or real estate um, history. I want to talk about the the time where you had to start all over at age 50 and you had put together your $19,000 because that was a key moment in your life. And first of all, how do you pick yourself up and push at uh, uphill at, at a risky investment like this? And, and how do you get through that, that whole situation where you, you're nearly losing your house, et cetera, and, and you find yourself on the other side many, many years later in a, in a very comfortable position? Um, I guess one of the biggest fears I had was that if I went broke, I wouldn't be able to recreate anything. Uh, and one of the, the great expressions is uh, fear spells false evidence appearing real. F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. So I have this belief that if I ever failed in business or if I lost a job, that I wouldn't be able to recreate it. So actually having gone broke, being on the verge of having my home foreclosed upon was probably one of the best things that could have ever happened to me because it let me know that I could get that far down and still put it back together again. The other thing I would say is that I've probably always been, and I didn't realize this so many years later, too insecure to be an employee. And when I say that, a lot of people say that doesn't make sense. No, being an employee is security. No, it's not. If you have 100% of your income coming from one source and that, and that company fires you or lays you off or goes out of business, you've lost 100% of your income. But you have not lost 100% of your bills. So being an entrepreneur and having multiple sources of income, whether it's from multiple clients or multiple products I sold or multiple anything, that means if any one thing falls apart, I still have some income coming in. You know, being an entrepreneur has been far more, providing far more security than ever being an employee. And the example was, you know, I had the job as the director of pensions for an insurance company for three months, 100% of my income came from it. And when they merged with another company, I was out 100% of my income. Exactly. And I totally agree with you because um, I've, I've experienced redundancies and, and things like that three times in my, my 15 or 16 year career. And, um, yeah, you, you literally lose 100% of your income within an hour and, and you're done. So it can be quite, quite confronting. And if you get nothing else to fall onto, um, it can be, very, very dim um, experience. Um, I wanted to ask you as well, what was your biggest breakthrough moment in your business? Hmm. I, you know, it, that's a good question. I'm not sure. It could have just happened last week. <laughs> and, and, and the reason I say that is um, my wife wanted me to speak with a psychic. Uh, and I said, I, what do I, I, okay, sure, whatever. You know, that sounds like that'll be fun and interesting. Um, because from what I understand, most people go to a psychic when they're troubled, when they have a decision and they don't know what to do, when they're confronted by something and they're, they're feeling overwhelmed. And I didn't have any of those issues 
But I figured, oh, you know, my wife wants me to, fine, whatever. The psychic, through our conversation, said that, oh, Rennie, it sounds like you're able to manifest things. And the next phase of your journey is that you should be writing a book or teaching people how to manifest. And I thought about it. And so I guess you could say the turning point was last week when I looked back over my whole life and saw time after time after time I was able to manifest whatever was needed. Uh, whether it was a job, whether it was soda pop bottles to get food for the family, whether it was selling door to door uh, to raise the money to make the house payment. Um, it, it, as simple as I dropped my motorcycle, I was checking something on my motorcycle and it started to lean too far the other direction. And this isn't like, you know, a little Honda. This is an 800-pound monstrosity. And it fell on my car. <laughs> and you can imagine when 800 pounds falls on someone's car, it will leave a dent. <laughs> and so it, it really ruined the front fender. And I was really feeling upset about it. And I thought to myself, well, given enough time, something will show up and I will get this repaired. And sure enough, a few weeks later, I'm parked by a U-Haul facility. I don't know if they have U-Haul in Australia or not, but people are able to rent vans and trucks to help themselves move. And a person who had rented the truck was pulling into the yard and hit the front of my car and ripped the bumper. So I go into the U-Haul and I say, you know, someone using your truck just ruined my car. And they said, well, he didn't buy the proper insurance. You need to call our home office. And so I did all that. And yesterday I got a check for $800, which is twice the money I need to fix the bumper and the, the dent that I caused. And so it seems like, yeah, you know, I manifest jobs. I manifest someone else paying to repair my car. And so that really was the wake up that I've probably been doing this since I've been in my 20s that I'm aware of. What about somebody today wanting to start um, a real estate portfolio as their, I don't know, retirement strategy or their wealth strategy, wealth creation strategy, um, and you're coaching them? What are some of the things you are the key thing, the key principles that you want to make sure they, they do over the next how long period? Well, the first thing is to learn. To learn about real estate, to learn terms, terminology, so that when someone is speaking to them, they are educated. You know, in the United States, if someone talks about a 1031 exchange or they talk about depreciation, if someone who's planning to build a real estate portfolio does not understand those concepts, it's too soon. They need to understand how real estate creates wealth. And it involves the tax laws. It involves leverage. It involves these things. As an example, someone who is afraid of debt probably should not be buying real estate. 
even though the debt is secured by the real estate and someone else is making the payments, if they just have this innate fear of debt, it's the wrong business for them. A favorite expression of mine was, you know, if I owe the bank $25,000, that's my problem. But if I owe the bank $25 million, it's their problem. Okay, so learning is number one. Yes, learning is number one. Number two, as I said before, it's a team project. It's not a do-it-yourself program. So if I'm mentoring someone, great. They've got one person on their team. Real estate does not have to be purchased by one person. You can have several people come together and buy the real estate. So no one ends up having to do it all by themselves, whether it's coming up with the money for the down payment or having someone to lean on for the knowledge and experience that they might lack. The third thing would be the action. So you learn, create a team, and then you actually have to take action. It's the same thing as someone who may be morbidly overweight. They might know that the two factors to losing weight are exercise and diet, eat less and exercise, but there may be emotional things in the way and they're unable to take the action because of it. Most important thing is to be able to take the action. If you have the fear and you have no support structure and you're afraid to take the action, nothing's going to happen. You know, I had a fear of making this investment in the triplex because it was all the money I'd saved. The whole $19,000 was going to go into one piece of property. And I did have a fear, but I wasn't doing it by myself. I had two other people involved in the process with me, and it turned out fine. So, you know, they helped me overcome the fear. What's what's been your personal finance philosophy? Because you 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 were used to living on a high income, and then you came down to to generating you know five thousand a month. I'm assuming that was lower than you would have when you were holding the high positions. How do you then save um, five hundred bucks from that every single month with that kind of discipline? What's what's been your philosophy around personal finance? Um, well, I guess the advantage is that I never the most money I ever earned in a year was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Um, generally, my income was in the ninety to one hundred thousand dollars range. When I was down to sixty, uh, I made enough cuts to my life. Oh, I realized one of the frustrations that I've had, and one of the reasons I teach people how to handle money effectively, is because that was not taught to me. And as I did research, I realized it's not taught in school. It's not taught by parents. Parents can't teach what they don't know. It's not taught to people who are certified public accountants. It's not taught to people who are certified financial planners. I find this absurd that the people you go to for financial support haven't even been trained how to do a personal budget. So a lot of what I do is teaching those basics. And so my personal philosophy really is based on a concept that's 5,000 years old called pay yourself first. It doesn't matter how much money you're earning. You've got to set aside a percentage of that that you own, that you control, that's acknowledging that this is money you earned and you get to keep. And that, and all the shifts in terms of attitude come from that action. I love that. And you're totally right. I mean, I spent you know, over four to six years studying finance and accounting. And um, 
that is not something that is taught. Um, we're taught to handle other people's money, um, business, business money, but not necessarily your own money. So, um, it is, that's why there's a gap in the market. So, you know, kudos to you for, for teaching that. Um, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. It's so I think a lot of people end up teaching what it is they struggled to learn. So I want to shift a little bit and pivot here to, to a series of questions. Um, how do you rank the following, if at all, faith, fun, family, finances, and friendships? I'd say faith is first. Um, I have extreme gratitude. I am very blessed. Uh, I acknowledge that that doesn't all come from me. There's something beyond me that supports me. Uh, if I make a declaration, whether you call it the universe, acknowledges me or God or a spirit or Christ you know, it's it's not relevant everyone's got their own definitions but it's really faith that when I'm taking the appropriate actions I will be rewarded next would be family because without that strength without that support it makes any kind of success relatively meaningless you know, I, I am so blessed in terms of my wife. My children are healthy. My grandchildren are healthy. Uh, our relationships are excellent. I, that's just such an important, fulfilling part of life. It's sort of like everything. Love is the strongest emotion that there is. It's stronger than hate. It overcomes hate. And when that's in, in present, it just makes life so easy and so beautiful. So I'd say faith, family, and after that, I don't even remember what you said. <laughs> I don't know how much it matters. <laughs> that's great. Well, the others were finances, fun, and friendships, but that's okay. Uh, appreciate that. Um, give us a 30-second look into a day in your life when you started your property business versus a day in your life today. Um, for about eight years, I was working seven days a week. I was available to the tenants almost at any point in time, and I'm trying to recall, because this goes back 16 years now, I just remember spending a lot of time either at properties, repairing things, overseeing construction, um, showing units, running credit checks, meeting with people, and pretty much having to be engaged in the business seven days a week for about eight years. At this point in my life, I get to do whatever I choose to do. Uh, if I choose to sleep in, I'll sleep in. If I choose to donate a bulk of my time to charitable pursuits, I do it. If I want to spend time at an apartment building sweeping steps or watering the lawn, I can do that. If I want to go out and buy a bicycle, and go out and buy a little motor and build myself a motorized bicycle, I can do it. The point is, I can choose to do whatever I want. And I would say that my standard of living is just as frugal now as when I was um, I don't... I mean, my car is 10 years old, it's paid for. My motorcycle is 20 years old, it's paid for. 
I don't do things to impress other people. My wife can't stand the way I dress. <laughs> Because most of the time I'm in, a, in jeans and a Hawaiian shirt. And she says it makes me look like an old man. <laughs> uh, but that's what I'm comfortable in. I don't need an Armani suit. I don't need a Rolex watch. And I don't need a new car. I'm happy with my life. I'm happy with the people in my life. And those are the most important things. I want to um, quickly ask you this, and I know we're, we're coming to the close of the show, but do you think somebody can um, generate success in um, building an investment portfolio in the, in the manner that you guys did it in, but in a flat property market? Um, well, it works better when the property market is rising. However, the good deals are available when property levels are flat or declining because it, it, Warren Buffett, who's one of the wealthiest men in the world, has a great expression, and he says, if everybody is buying, it's time to sell. And if everybody is selling, it's time to buy. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's great. So um, we'll talk about books very quickly, two books that you found are, are great for entrepreneurs, and then we'll also talk about um what you've written in terms of books. I'd say one of the most influential books uh, is very, very old. I'll give you two of them. One of them uh, was by Napoleon Hill, uh, and it's from his interviews with the wealthiest people in the world, and it was called Think and Grow Rich. And the other book that was the most influential on me was The Richest Man in Babylon. In other words, it talked about the concepts that are 5,000 years old that still work today, and it's how to create wealth. Yeah, no, that, I love those books. Um, Randy, talk to me about your books that you've written. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, um, people can actually get a summary, a three-page summary of my book, along with the forms that wealthy people use, if they just go to my website, wealthonanyincome.com. And I, I would say my book is different from what most books are that talk about wealth because they take a two-pronged approach. And the first third of the book is about the emotional components that have to be overcome before people can create wealth. There's attitudes that they need to understand that may be in the way, and they have to be moved out of the way first. In the same way, you know, someone might know about dieting or exercising to lose weight, it doesn't mean the emotional stuff is out of the way so they can take the action. So the first third of the book is really designed to do that. And then the latter two thirds is all the practical information on how to set up a personal budget, what to do if you have debt, where to start, how to pay yourself first, uh, where to invest when you've accumulated some money. So I start with the emotional and end with the very practical. Fantastic. And um, what is the best way for people to connect with you if they want to know more? I know you've, you've given us the, the website for the book, which we appreciate. Is there any other way that people can connect with you? Is that the best way? They can connect to me through the website. Uh, if they opt in, uh, I send out emails like once or twice a month uh, talking about various financial topics, everything from attitudes to practical information. And I actually believe my contact information is on that website as well. 
Hey, Rennie, um, for our last, I asked my last question. Um, I want to just acknowledge you for everything that you've done in the marketplace and uh, for deciding to pursue your dreams when, you know, everything seemed like it was all lost and gone at, at age 50. Yeah. And now for the last question, um, when all is said and done, what legacy do you want to leave and be remembered for and tell us why? It would probably be something similar to what some of the other wealthiest people in the world have done. I mean, Carnegie, uh, Dale, Andrew Carnegie spoke about the purpose of creating wealth is that when you're done, you give it away. He did the uh, Carnegie Mellon University. He established public libraries. And so when I die, uh, I want my legacy to be the charitable causes that I supported and that are saving the lives of our veterans who sacrifice so much, saving the lives of dogs that serve a purpose. And so that's why 100% of the, the, the work I'm doing now, those profits are going to uh, a charity called Shelter to Soldier. So the legacy would be what I've contributed to charitable causes. That, that, that's great. And um, appreciate all the contributions that you're making towards that. Um, I've heard about that cause, and I believe it's a, it's a wonderful cause. Um, so I, th- I thank you for coming back, coming on this show once again. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for hanging out with me and Rennie today. I hope you had as much fun as I did, and um, I hope you can take away at least one thing. And one of those things that I really think was, was critical here is you know, to set aside a percentage of your income and pay yourself first. Um, and remember to head on over to businessjournals.com for all the show notes. Just type in Rennie, R-E-N-N-I-E in the search bar, and his show notes will pop up with everything we talked about today. Um, Rennie, I just want to thank you for coming on to the show here, and uh, I know people are going to reach out to you on wealthonanyincome.com to, to chat more. Um, appreciate it for coming on. We, we're grateful. You're a true business general. Thank you so much, Davis. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, what's up, Business Journals family? Thank you for joining me and for listening to the Business Journals podcast. Connect with me at Davis Mutabwa. That's D-A-V-I-S-M-U-T-A-B-W-A. Connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. And you can certainly find me at our podcast blog, businessjournals.com. And while you're there, remember to access all the show notes, a ton of free resources, killer training, and so much more. Love you guys. Thank you for joining me. Ciao.